Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. Please also consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to our next topic. How's my audio? How's your audio? Good. I can hear you loud and clear. Perfect. Dennis, how are you, man? Uh, I'm good. Thanks, John. Good to talk to you again. Good Good to to see you again. again. Last time it was, the tables were turned last time you interviewed me, so it's fun to... That's right. That's already the old days now, it seems like. (laughs) Zach, we we recorded, we haven't finished patting you on the back about your damn world record, brother. Yeah, Yeah, really. Yeah, we're going now. Hey, let me ask you a question because, I mean, for those that, you know, we need to do like a, a whole podcast on this perhaps, but I mean, so you ran 100 miles in 1208.36. I was looking it up. looked like the previous record was like 1244. Is that, was that the previous record? Yeah, it, it gets a little, a little goofy, I guess, when it comes to kind of trail stuff because um, no one trail is the same. Right, sure. So sure, but... you get ones that are very difficult where like, you know, a, a world record type performance could take 20 plus hours on just due to the technicality and the steepness and things like that. And then you get some of these trails that are kind of like the one I was on on Saturday, which is a rails to trails, which is basically an old railroad bed that they took the railroad stuff off and just created like a crushed limestone path. And um, that's about as fast as you can find in terms of trails. So, uh, yeah, it was the fastest um, uh, certified trail anyhow for for 100 miles. Um, I think the yeah, the old one was 44, I believe, um, 1244. So, uh it's an interesting, interesting event, no doubt. But, uh, you know, the, the funny thing is, uh, I think the, the hardest variable this last, uh, this weekend was the, the weather. It was, it, it, we started, it was like 14 degrees. So, um, it Fair was right. a little, little wow. chillier than I would have expected. Um, nor, in normal years at that event, I think their range is about 40 to 60 degrees, which I think is about as ideal as you can find for a hundred miles. Um, that's just warm enough that you don't find yourself shivering even though you're moving, but it's chilly enough where you don't overheat very easily. And in fact, you probably don't have to hydrate as much because you're just, you know, not, not sweating nearly as much, but 14 degrees at the start is a little, (laughs) a little colder than, than maybe I would have liked. But, uh, other than that, it was a pretty solid setup for some fast running. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's not the, you're not the first person to run that tunnel hill. I mean, that's, that's Mm -hmm. obviously, so, I mean, you, you just crushed really anybody that's ever done that. It's amazing. So do, do you feel like, I mean, you know, granted it's a, it's a flatter course and it's easier than say the Western States as far as terrain. I mean, do you feel like you are physically better though, that, that you, that you're able to bust this, you know, this, you know, basically world record timeout? Yeah, I, I think I'm probably in about as good of hunt flat hundred mile shape as I've ever been. Um, you know, I, I think just like, I, I like to look at the training block just as much as I do the race itself because I think that's just a much bigger data set to kind of pull from. And, you know, my training went went really well going into it. Um, I did uh, uh, a lot of kind of what I would consider like kind of a really high-end aerobic type pace, um, the bulk of my work, and I basically just kind of built that up over the course of a few weeks. Um, and w- usually what that came out to being is like I would – 
I would use kind of heart rate and pace kind of as a grouping to kind of gauge fitness. And when I got to the point where, uh, I felt like I had a really good high end aerobic fitness, it would be usually between like maybe a five fifty five minute per mile and like a six Oh five minute per mile pace if it was flat and temperatures were good. And then it was just about building as much volume kind of at that intensity. Uh, and that's kind of what I like to do when getting ready for a hundred miler. So I think it's like, it makes hundred mile pace feel quite a bit more manageable. Um, but yeah, you know, I did a, a tune up half marathon a couple of weeks ago before too, and ran, I, what I would call like a really controlled, uh, 70 minute half marathon, which is like about f- right about five minutes and 20 seconds per mile. Um, I didn't do a whole lot of workouts at that pace. Uh, but I think you can just, you can build yourself to being able to kind of manage that by working maybe a, what you would consider a gear or so lower, but doing like a lot at that, that kind of intensity. Um, so like just all, all like indications in my training and stuff pointed to that. I was pretty fit for a, for a flat hundred mile or so. Um, it's, it'll be fun one to go back to. I actually think that course given typical temperatures and maybe just a little more strategic pacing in the early stages on my part. I think that, I think that course I could probably get down to around maybe 1145, 1150 or somewhere in that, in that range. So it's one I'd like to go back to and take another swing at. Well, 1150, 1140, that would be world record for even flat track. So that's awesome, man. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, the interesting thing too, is I'd never been on that course before. So um, it was a little hard. In fact, I've never ran a hundred mile, like a flat hundred mile that's not on an actual like track, like a rubber 400 meter track. So there was a little bit of a learning curve and I didn't want to necessarily rule out running a PR, which for me is 11 hours and 40 minutes. Um, and I kind of started to realize maybe around mile, probably around mile 40, 42, that it probably wasn't going to be like uh, an outright world record course, not on that day. So my pacing early on was probably a bit too aggressive. Um, had I known that in hindsight, I would have gone out a little slower and then maybe that would have helped some of the, um, splits at the end be a little faster than they ended up being. Um, but it's one of those things where you kind of, you either go out there and really recon the course or you do it and get, take that info and carry it forward to an event down the road too. So that's kind of my plan. I think I, I wanted, want to do that course more than once um so it'll be kind of cool to try to learn from from the first round hey where's it at zach i don't even know where it's at it's it's in vienna illinois so like kind of southern illinois maybe about two hours outside of st louis cool all right let's get let's get dennis in here and tell us how we're going to live to be 150 yeah. state jack okay man <laughs> that sounds dennis, good. that's that's kind of been your area you know you're you're uh you know, there's a lot of people that have their hat in the ring with regard to how we're all going to live, live, live long and prosper. And, you know, no one, no one's done it yet. You know, I, I always, I always see these longevity gurus and, you know, they're all 40 years old. I'm like, well, shit, give me some guys 120 that's jacked and I'll listen to them. So let, let's just, I mean, you know, you know, I look at your stuff and, and most of it, I think is just pretty freaking common sense. I mean, it's, you know, it's hard work. It's maintained muscle mass. It don't eat a bunch of garbage, get some sleep, recover. And then, and, and then there's some things beyond that, some little things beyond that. But let's let's just get your kind of overall philosophy, because I, I again I think there's a, there is a dearth of common sense out there. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of chasing our tail, a lot of BS, and a lot of magic magical thinking around what's going to make us live longer. You know, you got Dave Asprey out there telling us 
he's going to take 180 supplements and live to 180 and, and, and he sell and, and I mean, good for him. I mean, he'd make a lot of money doing that, but I, I, I somehow I think that's a little bit of uh, some snake oil going on, but let, let's get an overview from you and then we can get into some of the, some of the nitty gritty stuff. Right. Well, so it, it, it's interesting in, in aging there, there's uh, a lot of, uh, you got to separate, uh, several things that are going on. And, and like you said, there's a lot of common sense stuff here. So, uh, you know, basically uh, exercise as well as uh, the right kind of exercise that, that gives you good body composition, a high, high, uh, a high amount of muscle mass and a low amount of fat mass um, is, is conducive to health and long life. Um, so the thing is, ma- many many aspects of aging are just basically dis, you know, disuse or not, you know, not taking good care of yourself, that kind of thing. So it's really difficult to separate some of these things. You know, in other words, how do you talk about pure aging rather than, you know, just somebody letting themselves go? Uh, You know, what, what exactly goes on? A lot of the things, a lot of the changes in aging are very similar to, uh, for example, in obesity, insulin resistance, higher fat mass, and so on. And uh, also, you know, the changes from being sedentary, uh, you know, you lo- losing uh, aerobic capacity, VO2 max, and so on. So these, these changes are all seen in people who get older, but how much of it is due to, uh, you know, just not doing things right? Um, and how much is due to actual aging? It, you know, it's re- it's really hard to say. Even in animal experiments, uh, you know, these animals, these these lab rats, they're they're not living what you know what we would call what we'd think of as a normal life, right? They're they're in a cage environment. They're you know eat, eating this uh, lab chow, and and so you know when you when you do things, uh, when you do interventions on them that that uh, lead them to live longer, it's, it's often hard to say, sometimes hard to say, I guess I, I should put it that way. What is going on there? Are, are you just uh, ameliorating some kind of bad conditions they're living in, or are you really slowing aging and extending their, extending their lifespan? Um, as, as far as humans go, um, there, there are, um, Yes, there are a lot of common sense things. Unfortunately, um, as as all of us here know, and you know, in our circle on Twitter and so on, we talk about a lot. A lot of the you know conventional wisdom uh, is not very good here, not very helpful. Um, uh, for example, maintaining a high muscle mass as as you get older uh, requires a good amount of protein. Animal protein is the best. So uh, uh, being a vegetarian is not going to be helpful there. Um, and another thing is to, to maintain a high amount of muscle mass. Resistance training is the most helpful form of exercise there. So, uh, I mean, v, you know, VO2 max is important and it's, and it's shown, uh, you know, high aerobic capacity has been shown to be very much associated with good health and longer life. Uh, but uh, also, uh, you know, losing muscle mass is a big thing when when people age. Uh, 
the average 80-year-old has lost half the muscle mass that they had when they were in their prime. So, uh, you know, fixing that through resistance training and protein in the diet is uh, very important for stopping aging. Um, and just as, you know, to speak to your remark about, uh, Sean, about, um, you know, nobody, nobody has done this. Uh, uh, you know, the longest lived person was 120, 122 years old, Jean Calment. And, you know, m mostly, uh, mostly she got there by luck, uh, good genes and so on. Um, although as she may have done some things that were, you know, very, very helpful. The, the point I'm making in particular here is that very few people are doing these sort of things that, that conduce to long life. Most, most of the people you see, centenarians and so on, they, they got that way through, you know, through a combination of good luck and maybe some other things. But, you, you know, you don't see too many older people doing resistance training, eating the right kind of diet and so on. So a lot of that remains to be seen. Um, you know, we can, we can only... We, we can use science, we can speculate some as to what's going to conduce to long life, um, but the, the frontier is ahead of us uh, in, in seeing, uh, you know, how that's going to play out when people okay? live longer. Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah, you're good. Yep. Yeah, I keep seeing poor network connections. So I'm in a new new location here zach we moved home so i'm testing out this is the first podcast from the new oh yeah that's right office yeah. <laughs> so hey dennis so one one thing you pointed out you made the comment that animal protein seems to be superior to uh, vegetable protein now at one point you were if i'm not mistaken either a vegetarian or a vegan for a number of years and so you can speak from experience i'd like you to kind of go into that uh, a little bit if you don't mind R right sure um so yes i was i was a vegan um and i'm i <laughs> somewhat embarrassed to say at this point, but I was. And uh, ba basically, the this, this story goes like something like this. So when I was younger, I got very interested in, uh, in being healthy and keeping myself healthy. Uh, my, my father uh, was a doctor. Um, however, you know, back at the time, well, it was, it was, a, it was a different world back then. Um, and uh, he, he got a good case of uh, coronary artery disease. Uh, it, it didn't kill him, but he lived with it for a long time um, and, and severely affected his life. And, and so I saw that when I was young, and, and I was determined uh, that I did not want this to happen to me. So, uh, you know, I got interested in, in healthy living and so on. Uh, in the 70s, uh, about the time I started going into college, the running craze uh, began and I started running and I really liked the way it made me feel and kept me in shape. So I did that. Anyway, one thing led to another. And uh, at some point, uh, a few years later, I became a vegan. I suppose I may have been around 30 at the time, a little older. Uh, and because with this this whole idea of heart disease, uh, it, which is which is so prominent in talking about health and something I definitely wanted to avoid, and I was getting the message that, yeah, eating meat is bad for you, and being vegan is the best way to avoid heart disease. So I took it up, um, and things went along okay for a while, but uh, eventually, 
I was not feeling so well uh, and came down. Eventually, I got a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome. This went on for years and um, with, with no resolution, doctors couldn't figure out what was going on. It's also interesting in retrospect that none of the doctors I saw during that time over many year period ever asked me about my diet. It, it was just, you know, st strictly they approached, approached it strictly from a medical treatment point of view. Um, so after, after years, uh, of going through this, uh, I decided that I, if I was ever going to get well, um, that I would have to at least, I would have to try to figure this out myself. So I started digging in and one of the first things I discovered was that, you know, was, was people saying, well, Hey, this uh, vegan vegetarian thing might not be so healthy after all. Uh, it, it was kind of a shock to me at the time because the conventional wisdom is that this is the healthiest way to be. So I thought, how, you know, how could this possibly be? But the more I looked into it, read about it and so on, it, it made sense. And I decided that, uh, even if, even if this wasn't the key to my health problems that I could no longer afford to be a vegetarian vegan. And so I stopped and, uh, uh, started looking into paleo dieting, eventually went low carb, started feeling uh, better, much better pretty quickly once I stopped being a vegan. And uh, not long after that, I, I started exercising again. During this, during this time when I was ill, I was not able to exercise other than a little bit of walking. So I started exercising again, lifting weights and so on, and, and basically never looked back. Uh, that, that was, uh, probably, uh, let's see, 10 years ago that, that, that this began. And so here I am today. Hey, Dennis, let me just, you know, and, I, and I'm certainly an advocate of this, but let's, let me just drive home this point of maintaining lean muscle mass or lean body mass as we old, get older. How, how important is that? Because there's a lot of people out there, you know, particularly say you don't need very much protein that, it, you know, it's all a pursuit of vanity. If you if you maintain muscle mass, you don't really need to do that. Is there some does muscle mass confer protection to, from to us towards aging and disease? Absolutely. Um, there, uh, higher higher muscle mass and muscle strength is associated with lower rates of cancer, lower rates of heart disease, lower rates of diabetes. Uh, just just about you name it, it's associated with better health. So uh, obviously these are you know long term associational studies. Um, uh, there are studies, for example, where they've uh, measured grip strength, and then and then you know see how that correlates with health, and it grip strength grip strength correlates very well with health. So uh, clearly muscle is very important. It's also important for reasons that uh, pe people don't don't think about all that often. Uh, for one thing, it's associated with with more muscle means better metabolism, right? So lower lower insulin resistance. Um, you know, if someone were to eat a lot of carbs, it would be better able to handle carbohydrates because they have this muscle mass. It's a sink for for food that that we eat. 
So, yes, it's very important. Um, at the extreme case, uh, when, when uh, older people lose muscle, it can, it can be sarcopenia. And even worse than that, there's a condition called sarcopenic obesity. So these people, you know, if, you, if someone has sarcopenic obesity, you think of somebody who, who uh, you know, a, an old person who can't get out of their chair, needs help to do everything, weak and frail. So it, it is critical to have a healthy life as an older person to, to maintain that lean muscle mass. Absolutely. And I know you're a, you're a proponent of what's called a hit style of training. I know you like to do that. So that's infrequent, high-intense workouts, which works very well for, for many people. Can you briefly just kind of discuss, touch on that a little bit, you know, for people that don't know what that is and uh, kind of how you implement it? Sure. Um, yeah, so, so uh, I, you know, I lifted weights uh, for a long time in the conventional, conventional style. So conventional is a high-volume style where people uh, typically do three or more sets of every exercise. Um, the thing is that there are, uh, there are some drawbacks to the conventional way. And another thing is that it's not very well scientifically supported. So when you look into... What it, it, there's just a zillion studies of resistance training out there, and when you start looking at them, you find out what works and what doesn't. So, the important thing about high-intensity weight training is what what they call going to failure or momentary muscular failure. So, so basically, you you do a set of you're doing a set of whatever exercise you're working on. Um, you know, like, like, let's say a chest press or something like that. And you do it, you do the reps until you literally cannot do another one where if you're using good form, you just cannot push that weight forward, uh, any longer. So the idea is that you've now given, you now stress loaded that muscle and and given it the anabolic stimulus the maximum anabolic stimulus that it can get so if you're you know doing more sets like you know have the typical a typical uh weightlifter will do a set like that and then rest a minute or two or three do another set the idea is that doing more sets is not going to help you at least not very much um, diminishing returns. So you've, you've maxed out your anabolic stimulus by going to momentary muscular failure. So it's just doing one set, uh, per exercise, um, of each one. Then you, you know, you, you do your, you do your set to momentary muscular failure, and then you move to the next exercise. Um, and so another, you know, another thing about it is you, uh, you have minimal rest between sets. Um, like I was saying, conventional in conventional weightlifting, they tend to tend to rest a fair amount between sets. Um, but what you do in a high intensity training is you move to the next set with, with uh, minimal rest. So, uh, you know, my workouts, uh, typically last 30 minutes and I do two of them a week. Um, another reason why another, another aspect of high intensity training that's so important and that makes, uh, makes it, uh, sense more than the conventional high volume training 
is that when when you load your muscles like that, when you push them into momentary muscular failure, you give them the anabolic stimulus, they need rest and recovery. Um, so my my routine is, as I said, twice a week into the gym. That gives me plenty of time in between uh, in between my gym sessions for rest and recovery. A lot of these guys that are going into the gym every day or say four or five times a week and 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 working out with weights for you know sometimes literally hours at a time they i think they do themselves a disservice it can be counterproductive to muscle growth it could be actually counterproductive to health um, by by working out so much uh, certainly somebody like myself i'm 63 years old uh, I do have a bit lower recovery capacity than I did decades ago. Um, so, so this routine suits me well. I spend a grand total of about one hour a week in the gym and keeps me in shape. Perfect. Zach, you got any, 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 I want you to get in there and, and yeah. get on Dennis a little bit. Yeah, no, I want to, I just want to rewind a little bit to kind of like, uh, the nutritional side of things, if you don't mind. Um, sure. I think it's, I think it's interesting. I think, uh, you know, the resistance training thing makes a lot of sense to a lot of people. I, it, I think it's probably something where you'd have a hard time finding people to say cutting out all resistance training is, is smart. Um, although I'm sure you can find some, but, uh, uh, um, right. the, then the next question to my mind is always like, well, how do you kind of recover from that? Or how does, uh, um, how does your diet or your nutrition play a role in optimizing that work you put in? Um, and when I think of like trying to get the necessary proteins and amino acids for, for recovery, uh, we talked a little bit about kind of how, how meat has that kind of perfect package. Um, how does that really differ from just say like someone who does take a vegan or vegetarian approach and say, well, I get those complete, uh, amino acids. I just pair the right foods. Is it, a struggle for like getting the, what happens if their balance is off or if they don't really have a very careful mind to that versus picking something that is already kind of predisposed to be the perfect package. Right. So, um, you know, in, in theory, there's this balancing idea, uh, with, with, uh, with plant proteins that, that, if, you know, like the, the old one, I think rice and beans is, you know, mm -hmm. you put them together and you're supposed to get this, this, uh, uh right amino acid balance. And, um, you know, it, maybe if somebody did that just perfectly, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, maybe they, maybe they could do, maybe, maybe that could be effective. Uh, I have read some research on things like, uh, pea protein mm -hmm. that, that uh, that you know vegans can take, for example, and that appears to be effective if if it's taken at, at in pretty high amounts. You know, like for example, uh, this research I read, I think it was 50 grams of pea protein they were they were using, and uh, that seemed to be effective for uh, muscle growth. And you know, so that that's a lot of protein. It's also a supplement. This is not. This is not ordinary food we're talking about here. You know, you know, whether a vegan could, you know, could balance their rice and beans and, and you know, and, and get enough for, uh, of the right amino acids for muscle growth. Maybe 
Uh, quantity is also important, though, too. Um, it's it's pretty hard to get enough quantity there uh, doing that. There's uh, there's there's been a lot of research into how much protein is necessary to support muscle growth, and um, there's you know you know you get you get answers all over the place. Uh, one widely um, a circulated report from uh, I think about ten years ago came to the conclusion that if if people ate one point eight grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, that this would be sufficient for you know about ninety five percent of people to maximize muscle growth with resistance training. However, there's some new research coming out where they're using a new new uh, method of of protein. Uh, to, to look into protein requirements, uh, in the indicator amino acid uh, method, which is, is different from the old uh, nitrogen uh, retention method, and they're coming out with higher numbers now. So they're, you know, they're saying that the RDA has been underestimated. Then, then, there's, uh, then there's a further issue, um, if you want to call it an issue, in that the, an old assumption has been, well, okay, let's say we need 1.8 grams per kilogram, 2 grams per kilogram of protein. Uh, with, with the sort of hidden idea that more protein might be harmful for us. And I think the latest research shows that that is just not the case. Um, that you can pretty much eat you know, possibly unlimited amount of dietary protein, and it does it does not do anything harmful. Um, the 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 one uh, study uh, by the Jose Antonio was was what they were eating close to four grams, I think, of four grams per kilogram of protein, and did it for a year, and you know everybody was just absolutely fine, normal kidney function, and so on. So. Uh, you, you know, putting all that together, um, it, it just seems like, you know, the more protein, the better body composition you're going to have. And if it's animal protein, you know, it's, it's just that much easier to obtain. Um, it is important for recovery also to get back to the other question you asked, uh, pro protein is, is, you know, you need to you need to rebuild muscles after resistance training because you put them under quite a stress. Um, there, there is there is some damage. There, there are different things going on. There's, but one thing is there's some damage going on, and so your muscles repair the damage and they become bigger in the process. That's not the only thing going on um, because you activate, uh, you know. Uh, muscle building mechanisms, mTOR, and so on and so forth. But you do need to provide your body with the right nutrition to to build the muscle and to recover properly from your workout. Um, what, sorry, one thing I'll just uh, throw in there. Um, body Bodybuilders are really fond of talking about how you need carbs, to, to grow muscle. You need, you know, you need, you need carbohydrates and most bodybuilders do this. Uh, they eat a fair amount of carbohydrates. I don't, um, although I'm not a bodybuilder, 
but I do, you know, I do work out hard. Uh, I, I'm skeptical of their claims. I, I would not want to say that they're wrong because I, you know, like I say, I'm not a bodybuilder. I've never been in that milieu. Um, and, but there doesn't seem to be any, any scientific reason that I've ever seen that, that shows that, you know, carbs would be really helpful in building muscle. Um, protein raises, uh, insulin and insulin is required for muscle growth. So that seems to be the reasoning behind taking carbs to, to grow muscle. But the thing is, the protein raises insulin sufficiently to build muscle and adding carbs to that does, doesn't seem to do, you know, anything beyond that. So, um, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical about that without willing, I'm, I'm not willing to go all the way and say that they're wrong, but, um, I, I don't eat very much in the way of carbs myself, very little in fact. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think, uh, just to, fill in a little there too when you were talking about some of the new studies and things coming out about kind of like protein recommendations i know professor stuart phillips who we had on the show a while back has just been um uh, on twitter been pushing out a lot of new information that 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 is kind of showing what you were just talking about too so if the listeners are curious about reading into more of that go check out some of his work um and then uh the other side too with the the carbohydrate thing you know i always wonder with with bodybuilders too, it's like um, they're kind of at an extreme in the sense that the, um, the you don't see a whole lot of people of that size walking around for a reason. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Like they work very hard to kind of build themselves up to almost an unnatural state that they have to try to maintain them. Um, you know, I, I think it's also why you see some of those bodybuilders too, like at the end of their bulking phase, they're like, they're sick of eating. Like they don't want to eat more because they're eating way past their satiety point of what their body would want to be at whatever normal size it would be if they were just kind of doing a, a more normal, I guess, routine of uh, lifting and body composition. And, and I like looking at that world because I feel like I'm kind of in the same boat, but from the other end of the spectrum as an extreme endurance athlete where, you know, I go out on a big training block and I might metabolize sometimes two to three times my resting metabolic rate. So I'm eating for two or three of me sometimes. And it's like, I think to really tie down what we need or don't need in some of these extremes and then try to lump that into the general populace is sometimes getting a little, it gets a little hairy at that point. Um, and then I think, I think, we, I, I think that's a good point. Um, you know, so, someone suggested to me that maybe, you know, maybe bodybuilders, uh, like carbs because, because of the satiety thing, they can just keep, just pound keep them. <laughs> yeah, they can just pound the carbs and, and, and it's no problem. So anyway, that, yeah, that, that could be a reason, like you say, hard to eat that much. Hey Dennis, let me just, just interject a few things in here, you know, back to when we had Stu Phillips on, you know, he did talk about insulin being not, not required for muscle growth, but permissive. He used that term permissive rather than growth hormone. So I think that's a little subtle distinction there. Um, I do agree with your point about the satiety because I know when I attempt, and, and as you know, I'm on a basically a carnivorous diet and, and so I don't have any carbs. And so when I try to put on muscle, which I have done, I have to eat a lot and I have to eat well beyond satiety. So if we look at guys like uh, Stan Efferding, who I don't know if you're familiar with, he, he promotes something called a vertical diet, which is a lot of red meat and he throws in some rice and a few bits of fruit in here and there. And, and the reason he has a rice is because he says it allows his athletes to eat more. And I think that's I think right. there, there there is something to that. And so I think it's not the carbs that are building the muscle, 
Uh, but you, you know, you have to have the, I mean, we're made out of pro, muscles, protein, basically, right. I mean, it's, it's getting enough protein there. Um, what other, uh, so let me just sort of change gears a little bit, because I think this is another important topic. Now you wrote a book called dumping iron and you talk about, uh, some of the issues with excess iron accumulation in the body and how it's related to all kinds of, uh, you know, different diseases. Let's, let's, let's kind of delve into that topic a little bit. And then I want to kind of because I think, again, like all of these biomarkers that we use, I think we have to talk about different populations because you and I have gone back about, you know, does this apply? Who does this apply to? Right. Does it apply to everyone equally? Are there people with metabolic disease where it's more problematic, which is most of the country, unfortunately, people eating the wrong diet? Anyway, go ahead. And let's, let's, let's get your thoughts on iron for a little bit. Now for a word from our sponsors. Hey folks, thank you for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, we are very excited to have ButcherBox sponsoring the show. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the, on the, uh, in the sous vide and then uh, reverse searing or then searing it up in a cast iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know, looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass finished products that you might get in the store, this is actually a fair bit more economical. And so I think it's a, it's a good value, good quality, and, and, and a very uh, you know enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks. Awesome, thanks, Sean. Remember, to get your discount and free bacon, type in promo code HPO at the checkout. Now, back to the show. Okay, well, um, I, guess, I guess, you know, to start from the beginning to people who are not familiar with this topic, uh, yes, uh, high levels of body iron associated with, uh, you know, all kinds of, you know, basically chronic diseases across the board, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and so on. They're associated with aging. Typically, as as human beings uh, age, they accumulate excess body iron. Uh, men accumulate more body iron than women, and men have higher rates of chronic disease earlier in life. So, they're, they're, uh, b- blood donors have better health. The, the blood donors uh, uh, lose iron with every every donation. So. Uh, there, there are all kinds of reasons for thinking that iron is important. So, uh, you know, what, how, how does this affect people? And, you know, th- this is a question I get a lot. Well, what about meat? Because meat, red meat especially, has a lot of iron. So are you doing yourself a disservice by eating a lot of meat and getting the iron from the meat? So the, the thing is, is that uh, under normal circumstances, uh, we ought to be able to regulate the amount of iron that we take in, that we absorb from the gut. And if when we have sufficient iron, we, we basically turn down the volume on the absorption. We don't absorb as much. But in all kinds of cases of, uh, you know, metabolic derangement, 
uh, you know, diabetes, for example, we may absorb uh, that that regulatory mechanism may um, may fail or may may be off kilter, right? And so we may absorb more iron than uh, than necessary. Now the thing is, is that human beings have no uh, regulated way of getting rid of body iron, right? So we can we can only absorb less of it or absorb more of it. But once we got it, it's pretty hard to get rid of. Uh, it, we it, it we get rid of it slowly, you know, small small amounts in in bleeding or skin sweat that kind of thing, sloughing off of, of cells. So. Um, so once we've got it, if you have, if somebody has excess body iron, once they've got it, um, it, it's, it's hard to get rid of. So now how does this relate to eating meat and to, uh, other, to health problems that people might have? So there are a number of reasons why, uh, people may have high body iron. Like I said, metabolic dysregulation, like in, in diabetes and, uh, also, uh, in the United States and in uh, a number of other countries, uh, food, certain foods are fortified. They're, it's mandatory fortification with iron uh, of certain foods. So in the United States, all flour, cornmeal, and rice is fortified with iron by law. So uh, pe- people are... Uh, people, when, when they eat these foods, they're, they're getting iron whether they like it or not. Uh, some countries have uh, Sweden and Denmark, notably, and there's talk about it in Brazil, have abolished iron fortification of foods because of these dangers. They, you know, the idea is that uh, people who are uh, in danger or at risk of iron deficiency anemia will will get enough iron uh, if the foods are fortified. <clears throat> but the problem is uh, everybody else is getting the iron too. And, uh, you know, a number of people and a number of countries are deciding that the risks outweigh the benefits of fortifying food. Nevertheless, if you're an American and you're eating these foods, flour, you know, flour, cornmeal and rice, you're getting you're getting iron, potentially excess iron. Uh, A number of things. Uh, Sugar, sugar, dietary sugars, you know, seems to increase the absorption of iron uh, being overweight. Uh, form of metabolic dysregulation. Uh, alcohol, drinking alcohol increases the absorption of iron. Drinking things like orange juice, you know, increases the absorption of iron. So there's all kinds of things going on. Um, and and so, it, so I, I personally do not consider meat to be a risk for excess body iron. Basically, if you're in good shape, um, and you're you're not eating these other foods, not drinking too much, uh, et cetera, then you you know you shouldn't be in danger of excess body iron. Um, so that's uh, that that's how I see that particular issue. If some if somebody does, uh, you know, if somebody ate a poor diet, was in bad shape, and so on, and, and did accumulate this excess body iron, then I I feel that uh, they should take steps to bring it down. Um, but I don't feel that, uh, you know, one, once they're in shape, eating a good diet, including plenty of meat, it shouldn't be a problem. Yeah, Dennis, just, just because I, I'm kind of a central collection point for God, all, God knows how many labs people send me. And I, and I continue to see 
very underwhelming ferritin scores on people that are on carnivore diet. I mean, they don't change. Right. They go down. They don't make much of a difference. You know, we don't see iron accumulation in most of these people. Um, there's a there's a there's a uh, hormone called hepcidin, which I'm sure you're pretty aware of that the liver produces. And I think it, 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 it you know, you talk about restricting absorption and I think it, it acts on the enterocytes to, you know, so if you're taking in a bunch of, of heme iron or iron, you know, you, you just excrete it out through through you know, through the feces, so you don't absorb that much. And so, yeah, I, I've not seen, you know, again, I think, you know, in my view, probably if you're metabolically deranged, you, you, those sort of regulatory mechanisms are probably messed up, and that's why you probably, you know, accumulate some of this iron. And, and who knows if this supplemented form of iron acts differently than heme iron does. I don't know. Maybe right. you do. Right, right. Well, so uh, it's it's not absorbed quite as well as heme iron, but this but it can be pretty destructive. Uh, they they found that taking iron supplements, for example, which is essentially the same form, uh, you know, it's metallic iron that they they put in this uh, uh, that they put in food. It comes comes from a mine, you know, and, and so that that's not really very good. Um, and what what happens in, in inside the body is that. Uh, you know, ferritin is a protein that keeps iron under control, keeps it from reacting. But when you when you when you get iron in this form, uh, fortification or iron supplements, you you're, you're ingesting this sort of uh, if you want to call it naked form of iron, and which which reacts with proteins and other you know cellular parts and causes all kinds of damage. Um, so yeah, that. Getting getting iron through fortification is is definitely has some risks. You know, conversely, Dennis, uh, and I think we need to discuss this because, you know, iron deficient anemia. You know, iron is also one of the most common nutritional deficiencies out there as well. So it's kind of a, you know, it's it's probably a, a problem of a you know a, a third world country versus it's a first world versus a third world country issue. I think. Right. Right. It, it is. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. It's there, there's many. Um, yeah. Iron deficiency anemia is a big problem in the third world. Uh, not not quite so much in a place like the United States. Uh, you know, a, a, a small number of people, a small percentage of the population are at risk for at higher risk for iron deficiency anemia in the United States, mostly uh, young women of childbearing age. Um, it. it the problem of iron in the United States is is more one of excess, especially as people get older, um, that that they accumulate this excess iron and uh, it could very well be contributing to the aging process. I believe it is. There's all kinds of uh, good good scientific research showing that other organisms also accumulate iron as they age, and that by uh, getting uh, Getting rid of the iron, or or by preventing its accumulation, uh, these organisms live longer and in better health. And uh, there, there's all kinds of, of of other things, like like for example, tea drinking is associated with better health. Well, one of the, one of the things that tea does is it prevents absorption of iron. Um, and and uh, you know in, in the in the third world, they're they're uh, concerned about this. They're concerned about tea drinking because it prevents the absorption of iron, and they're more iron deficient. Uh, there's more iron deficiency anemia there. That's all. You know, I'm I'm also interested in that topic because, like, I guess the population in the United States that uh, tends to have more of an issue with low, I think, rather than high, is in the endurance community. I see 
you know, uh-huh. a lot of endurance athletes with low iron scores and trying to get their iron back into range. And I rarely, if ever, I actually can't think if I've ever talked to an endurance athlete who said, well, mine's too high. <laughs> so uh-huh. what is it about just like high volume aerobic work that kind of drives iron down? Or is there anything that you know that would cause that? There, there, there is actually there. There's uh, evidence that you know exercise uh, de- decreases uh, ferritin stores, and this could you know could very well be one of the mechanisms by which exercise Im- improves health. So uh, you know when you're when you're doing uh, you know high volume exercise like endurance running, uh, you know the hormone hepcidin is going to um, it's going to increase, which uh, decreases uh, iron absorption. Also, uh, and and you would know more about this act than than I do, but my my feeling is that um, a lot of runners are not necessarily eating very well. Um, yeah, well, and I think you, <laughs> yeah, I think it's an interesting environment because like a lot of times sometimes people when especially when they get into the really high volume stuff sometimes their exposure is to like a collegiate cross-country track team or club or some program like that where they're doing a lot of training and sometimes it's like um it's not always met at a time in your life where you're super um into like you know getting getting all the right nutrients and you get you get on like the college diet of like ramen noodles and stuff like that and then couple that with like 100 mile training weeks it's you know i think that's where you sometimes see the worst of the scenarios um but yeah yeah you know and i think too like on top of that just the culture and endurance is always well not always but it's in in modern endurance anyway has been one of high carbohydrates and low fat and and then on top of it, I think the the women's side of the sport has probably been hit much harder with this, just because there's always been kind of this draw to the sport as from a from a body composition side of things, and it's um, you know it's it's just really recent that like as a society we've promoted strength training and building muscle for women. So like right. f- from an activity standpoint, like you don't have to go back too far where like their options were basically aerobic and then you go back even further than that and their options were basically don't do sports so like it's really kind of an interesting i guess cultural phenomenon between men and women and kind of their experience with it as well right right um there there was a case of uh uh the the uh, american record holder for the marathon and his name escapes me at the moment um who retired a few years ago um he retired. He Ryan said he was sub- Yeah, there you go. Right. So he retired due to chronic fatigue. And at the time, uh, I so I looked at what he was eating, and it was seemed to be pretty bad. Um, so there he was putting in all this mileage and and not eating properly, at least by my lights. Yeah, uh, you know, it's that's always been the question I've had with just the whole performance advantage to carbohydrates. And I don't know how far down this rabbit hole we want to go, but like, um, you know, my thought has always been like context is everything. And, uh, like perhaps what we did is we took something like carbohydrate. That's a very high octane fuel and kind of double and triple down on it past its point of necessarily like peak benefit. Um, and it's, you know, everyone wants to look to the actual event itself, like the actual day they're running the marathon or the actual day they're running the five kilometer race and say, these are the fuel substrates they're using. 
and they're ignoring the other 364 days out of the year where you know maybe they're resting and recovering you know maybe they're just doing really low intensity um, volume building stages where they don't need that high octane fuel source in the quantity that they would perhaps need it when they're doing something a lot more uh, like a marathon or a 5k and it's like how do you balance those so that you can more or less periodize your nutrition as opposed to just taking one food group like carbohydrate and make it the king of everything within this sport um, because you know it's it, Sean and I've talked about this a lot in the podcast it's like it's hard to look at professional athletes in their 20s and 30s because you can get away with a lot when you're in your 20s and 30s right. and the thing that scares me is the number of professional athletes that find themselves you know wrecked in their early 30s when they should be at peak fitness in their life so like it's, it's hard to pinpoint nutrition as the sole culprit and it's likely you know a combination of things like um, I've said this before too. It's like, I don't think there's really anything healthy about doing hundred to 140 mile training weeks, week in and week out either. That's kind of a performance purely approach to health or not health, I guess, to, to, you know, maximizing what you can do with your body, I guess. And you're fighting an uphill battle from the health side of things, um, to some degree. So I think there's a combination of things. And, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons why I kind of got into the high fat approach originally too, was, um, you know, I want to compete at a high level. Um, I don't want to be a shell of myself when I'm 40 and limping around either. So right. it's like, I, I try to balance it a bit. Um, but I, you know, I think, I think there's, there's definitely still things to, to learn about exactly how many carbohydrates you really need versus like what, what the max or, or what's the lowest dosage for maximum performance, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, and uh -huh. that's going to be probably timing throughout the year based on your event. Um, you know, in, in all, all kinds of other things too, but it's an interesting topic. Right. Uh, obviously just going to point out, uh, yeah, it's probably pretty obvious, but this is some of the same strictures apply to weightlifting too. You know, you've got people in there doing things that are not necessarily healthy, uh, you know, uh, power lifters and, and so on, or, you know, or, or bodybuilders, uh, doing, just just going to excess excess weight excess time doing it you know just every everything in excess it's not yeah not necessarily all about health and Dennis should be proud my workout today lasted 90 seconds so <laughs> <laughs> all right I, actually I may I may go back and sneak another one in for something later today if I have hey two more topics I want to talk about um just just while you're here one you know when we go back to aging let's talk about what do you consider at least a based on what we know now, valid measures of aging. Is it telomere length? Is it iron stores? Is it body composition? Is it, you know, is it, are there some things we can, we can say you are aging appropriately or not? And then the other thing, cause I know your background is in microbiology. And so there's, there's all kinds of hoopla around the microbiome now. And it's, it's kind of, I see a lot of cart being put before the horse, you know, stuff. And I think it's, right. you know, we get a lot of people say, if you have this, this species of Prevotella and this species of uh, Firmicutes, everything's good. And I just, I just find that, that, that to me seems a little bit, I don't think we know enough to do that. So I'd like to get your take on, on, you know, what are healthy indices of aging, you know, that we can measure. I think there's some, you know, obvious ones, maybe some we don't know about. And then perhaps let's, let's delve into this microbiome, uh, hysteria a little bit. Oh, okay. Sure. Um, well, with regard to markers of aging, um, yeah, there, you know, there are some, there are some fairly esoteric tests like uh, telomere length, um, and so on. The, the epi so-called epigenetic clock 
is a, a big topic right now. So, so uh, you know, these are, in case people don't know, these are not tests that you can go to your local clinical laboratory and have done. Um, one of the interesting things about the epigenetic clock is that it, it could provide a good shortcut to researching uh, anti-aging interventions and protocols. Uh, the, the problem with researching aging, a big, a big problem with researching aging in humans is that we live a long time and it's very difficult to get a large group of people, put them on one intervention and then you know wait X number of years, see how many die and you know in which group and so on. It's just, it's just totally prohibitive to, to do any kind of a study like that. So uh, one, one idea with the epigenetic clock is that you can test an intervention and then see if this epigenetic clock changes. So you can, you can hopefully uh, test more anti-aging -inter anti interventions more quickly and cheaply that way. Uh, as far as other indices of aging, there, there's, uh, there has been some research where they've basically taken a, a you know a totality of people's clinical laboratory work and you know complete blood count and chemistry panel and so on and and looked at them and you can get an idea of uh, you know what what someone's biological age is or or whether they're aging at a slower or faster rate by looking at the totality of of their uh, clinical laboratory uh, uh, results obviously some are more important than others you know for for example something like albumin um, if the, if albumin is low that's not a good sign that somebody's aging quickly and so on various red blood cell indices um, and so on um, to get to your to your microbiome question I I am basically of the same mind as as you are Sean I I think some of the card is getting put before the horse um, the the my you know certain certain micro uh, species of bacteria and certain microbiome compositions are associated with better health or worse health and so on but the you know the thing is you know, the microbiome responds to diet and it responds to exercise and responds to all kinds of other things. So, you know, who's to say what comes first, the, the, the microbiome, the particular microbiome composition or the health, the good or bad health? Um, what's a, what's a, of more interest to me and I think uh, rather compelling regarding aging and bacteria and, and other microorganisms is is evidence that various chronic diseases are are associated with bacterial infection or or infection by other microorganisms for example alzheimer's uh, some very interesting studies where they found fungal elements in the brains of people with alzheimer's disease um, they you know they found uh, back you know bacterial remnants in arterial plaque and this kind of thing so, uh, you know, as, as we age, one of the obvious things that happens is our immune systems decline. Uh, in, you know, overt infections are a, a, a large cause of death in, in the elderly. I mean, they might have some other chronic disease, but eventually it's an infection that gets them. Um, 
but but you know more subtle are these these uh, you know if we ha if we have uh, uh, microbes invading our brain or our heart um, uh, they 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 found backing up a little bit it, it's been a, it's been a complete dogma that our bloodstreams are sterile and you know if you have bacteria in your bloodstream you have a major problem well they're you know they're finding that's not necessarily the case that they can look at normal healthy people and uh, you know a large percent of them have dormant bacteria that they can eventually grow that they get out of their bloodstream so um, this is overturning a lot of what was previously thought so with with aging like i said our immune systems decline maybe something is going on that so now we can't control these bacteria which were are all around us and in us um, and we can't control them as well leads to disease this, this is uh the, I, I don't know if i want to say an emerging field but um it's it's all very interesting the bacteria and other microbes are turning up in in uh you know chronic diseases Who's to say what's going on? Did the bacteria get there because these people were not healthy, or did the bacteria cause the ill health? You know, was there is there something about uh, uh, the brain of Alzheimer's patients that that allows the fungal growth just as based basically a side effect? Um, Alzheimer's patients also have high high um, free iron in the brain. Microbes need iron, so you know, so the 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 microbes could be uh, attracted to and and grow from the free iron that's in the brain. So in all these things, uh, it seems you know we we don't know cause and effect, um, but but these things are there, and uh, I think it's it's a um, important aspect of research on aging and uh, to, to find out, you know, what, what is going on there. Dennis, I mean, I think that's, you know, an important sort of point you bring up in general with talking about, you know, whether it's causality or reverse causality. We don't, we don't really know what these associations, which comes first, but it is important to, 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 I mean, it's kind of interesting to speculate the fact that we've got these bacteria that, you know, when we're dead, the bacteria are going to eat us. And so maybe they're not, you know, maybe when we start getting sick, they start eating us a little bit early, you know, so to speak, right, you know, right. it's kind uh, of interesting. And it's one thing that I think is interesting. And I don't know, I know, again, anecdotally, and I've, I've seen this in myself and many other people that when they change their diet to a more healthy diet, we can argue about what that is. But, um, you know, I, I just noticed a decreased incidence in, you know, things like upper respiratory infections. You know, when, when six or seven years ago, I'd get four or five a year and they'd keep me down for a week or so. And, now I rarely, if ever, get anything. It's a, it's a day or two thing, and it's done. And so I think, again, is that a more robust immune system, which, you know, was was caused by an improved diet? I don't know the answer to that, but it may go back to your point that if you're constantly getting colds, you know, being brought down to this stuff, how much of that stuff is is chronic disease? It's just, you know, an immune system that's not functioning well. It's going to end up causing or, or attributing or being part of this arterial plaque or this Alzheimer's. Uh, you know, pathophysiology, interesting to, to speculate about. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. I agree with you. I, I mean, it's it, some, some people are just, just have basically chronic infections. I mean, there, there are people out there who have urinary tract infections just over and over and over again. And, and, uh, you know, it, it has to be, well, I think it has to be due to poor immune function. Um, 
um, where you know we're not supposed to be getting urinary tract or other infections all the time. And, and I've had the same experience with you. I used to get, uh, I suppose, a couple of colds a year, uh, you know, regularly, just thought it was normal. And, you know, I get very few uh, now, although, as you know, I just had one re recently. But um, I, I, I get much fewer colds now. It's a matter of your, your uh, the immune system. The, these microbes are everywhere. It, you know, in the common parlance, people talk about, well, you know, there's this bug going around um, and I and I caught it. Well, the, you know, these bugs are always going around. They're everywhere. <laughs> right. You're, and so you, you need a you need a robust uh, immune system to protect yourself from them uh, there. You know, there's even, um, you know, in 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 microbiology, there are even extremes of thought that where pe there are people out there that say, you know, it's all your immune system. You should not ever be getting an infection um, that, that you know, this, this bug has, whatever the bug is, a virus, bacteria, fungus, has to find the right environment. And basically, you know, it's your body's job to make sure it does not find the right right environment. And if it does and you get infected with it, there's something wrong. Um, you know, there there might be some exceptions to this, uh, you know, something like anthrax, is, you know, pe people get it. But and and it's, you know, highly fatal and so on. But, you know, may, maybe even even in a case like here, you know, people have immune immune defenses against it. We you know, I think we just don't know. Um, we you know, to to say that some organisms, um, you know, tularemia or something is going to always get you or whether your immune system has to be uh, in in some state of decay or decline for you to get it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, you know, obviously you talk about environment. I mean, we're colonized. I mean, we're all colonized by bacteria right. everywhere. Our GI tract, our skin, everything, our mouth. We, we have, there's a difference between colonization and an infection. I think that's that's a point that people know. We're not walking around in sterile rooms, in sterile environments. Yeah, right. we're, we're, we're smothered in bacteria every day. And so the thing is, is there something going around? You're right, there's always bacteria there. And it's, it's you know, what, what happened to you that, cause it why you know like we say it's cold weather out what's going on there is it because more people are confined you know you know it's 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 kind of one of those why why do people get sick during the winter and not so much in the summer interesting discussion right right dennis let me get five well i don't know five just a handful of your top thing like i want to age successfully obviously i'm not out here trying to have a heart attack i think i'm doing i'm doing what i think is the right thing for me Right. And, and hopefully I'm, I'm steering people in the right direction. But what are your thoughts on if I want to age appropriately? What are the what are the handful of things people need to do that we're not doing or, or not doing enough of? OK. OK. Well, yeah, that's interesting. So in, in one of the things in, in the U.S., all right, the average the average lifespan for a man is 76 years old. So not terribly high. So you look into what are those average people doing that makes them die at an average 76 years. Well, you know, the average includes people who smoke, who are overweight, um, all kinds of other things, drink too much and so on. Um, the, and so there have been studies that found that um, five, five things 
if people do five five things or live in in these certain ways that that they live to an average age of 90 uh, you know it was like 89 for a man 91 for a woman so these these things are basically what everybody knows anyway you eat a healthy diet you maintain a, a lean body weight you know normal body weight um, you don't drink to excess you don't smoke and you exercise so just by doing these simple things uh, the average lifespan goes up to, to around 90. Now, so I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, making any kind of revelations here. You know, everybody knows these things, even if they don't practice all of them or are able to practice all of them, but those, those simple things will get you to 90. So to, to get beyond 90, uh, and, and in, you know, into the upper reaches beyond that, it to you know to my mind there's intermittent fasting and so that's important um pe people just you know regardless of the composition of people's diets pe people are just eat too much they're eating all the time and it it's it's just not normal so we you know in a, in a, in our evolutionary environment the uh, uh, the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness you know we didn't have food all the time we weren't able to have snacks every 2 hours and so on so this this is one thing i think uh, we, you know we can speculate on what are the mechanisms there for instance there there's is some very interesting research that shows a ketogenic diet basically does the same things as intermittent fasting and calorie restriction in terms of biochemistry. So it's, it's possible that just by eating a ketogenic diet, you can get the same benefits. Nevertheless, I do both. I eat a ketogenic diet and I do intermittent fasting. Um, so I, I think that, you know, for the, for the average person, uh, you know, the intermittent fasting doesn't have to be a big deal. Uh, you know, it's, it's just basically an eating window. So just don't eat all the time, you know, confine your eating to eight to 10 hours a day within that window and don't eat the rest of the time. So, you know, that, so that's one thing that, um, you know, most people are not doing. The other thing is, uh, which we talked about earlier, body composition, maintaining a high muscle mass and a low, low fat mass. So people do this by doing resistance training and other forms of exercise and eating a healthy diet. Um, you know, so so those are those are the simple things that people can do to prevent aging. Um in, you know, in more in more general terms, I've I've said that comfort is antithetical to long life. So too much comfort, basically being a couch potato at the extreme end of comfort is really bad for you. So our our bodies are designed to be stressed and and then to recover. And whether it's intermittent fasting or stressing through exercise and so on, and then we recover and to maintain that normal rhythm, that normal rhythm works very well when we're younger and that rhythm kind of flattens out as we get older. So to, to maintain that normal rhythm of st stressing ourselves, uh, I'm talking about an acute stress, not a chronic stress. And I'm not talking about anything overwhelming. I'm just talking about, you know, get up, move around, don't eat all the time, that kind of stress. And then, 
and then you recover from that stress. And so I, I think that's very important in, in aging, not, not letting your, not letting yourself go like that, where you're just, it's just comfort all the time. Yeah, I think this is good common sense advice, Dennis. And I think, you know, unfortunately it gets, it gets lost. You know, I think so many people pay attention to the minuscule stuff. You know, they're, they're all battling about some, you know, the latest study on something and, and, you know, they want to yep. perfect everything. We don't do the big things. Hey guys, I got to go. Um, so this new house I've got, we've got apparently a koi pond and there's a turtle in there <laughs> and I don't know anything about these damn things. And so Apparently the turtle has to get up and sun himself and he can't, he's swimming around there. And so I got to go build a platform so he can climb out of the water and go sun himself. So I got to, I got to cut it loose. But Zach, why don't you uh, just let us know where we find Dennis and, and all that stuff. And um, we'll get this out maybe on Patreon today and then out to the, cool. to the masses in the near future. Yeah. We'll get this one up on Patreon and then in a couple of weeks to the, to the, all the other podcasts net or listening devices, I guess. Um, just one more thing I'll add, because we talked about the bodybuilding stuff, um, and Dennis, you had mentioned about the high carb versus lower keto style. Um, I forgot, I, was, I wasn't thinking straight, but Robert Sykes, I don't know if you've heard of him, he's a professional natural bodybuilder who does, uh, I think, a fairly strict ketogenic diet, so he might be an interesting person to look into to see what he has to say about the need or lack thereof a carbohydrate when bulking, cutting, and everything in between with the bodybuilding side of things. Um, but yeah, other than that, um, it was great to have you on, Dennis, who are a wealth of information. Looking forward to get this one out. Definitely share any social media website stuff that you want uh, our listeners to know so they can come find you and check out what you're up to. Oh, okay. Well, I, I'm on Twitter. And my handle is Mangan150. That, that's my last name, Mangan, M-A-N-G-A-N, and 150. And my website is roguehealthandfitness.com. Uh, th those are my, my two major online venues. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. All right. It's Zach and Sean, thanks so much. It's great being here. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.